the last time we met, which was two weeks ago or three weeks ago, I think, we had an opportunity to be in uh, breakout groups for a little bit. And everybody said that was great. So today is an experiment. I'll teach. I have a lot of things to talk about. I normally talk way too much because you may have noticed that I'm a facile talker. I talk a lot. But everybody said it was great to hear other people's opinions. So having heard that, I would like other people to have a chance not only to hear other people's opinions, but to be able to articulate their own opinion to uh, the people that they're in a group with. So I was just about to say how many people are in favor of that. Not going to do that because it's going to happen. <laughs> and if you're not in favor, we're too late. We're just trying it today and seeing how it is. Uh, <laughs> Carolyn says, Sylvia never talks too much. That's very sweet, Carolyn. Thank you very much. Everybody else has things to say. Now we're going to go back though, to Carlita because she always has things that she's mandated to say. And I'd love to hear her say them because they're good things. Oh, no worries. Thank you so much, Sylvia. Well, really, I am just here to welcome each and every one of you on behalf of Spirit Rock. It's really with great respect and deep kindness that we welcome each and every one of you to Spirit Rock's Wednesday meditation class. And of course, it's always sweet to say, as many of you know, that this class has been meeting consistently for over 30 years, and it was started by our very own and deeply beloved Sylvia Borstein. So whether you are a longtime practitioner here with us at Spirit Rock, or if this is your first time, please know on behalf of all of us at Spirit Rock, we welcome you. We welcome all parts of who you are, your beliefs, gender, orientation, your color, culture, abilities and ages, economies, and education. So we invite you to please fully take your place in this circle. For those of you who I may not have met before, my name is Carlita. I am an online retreat coordinator here at Spirit Rock. And that simply means if you have any uh, Zoom questions or any technological hurdles during our session, please feel free to send me a chat at any time. I'd be more than happy to assist you. Or if you have any questions about Spirit Rock, also, please feel free to send me a Zoom chat. Happy to help you out. Uh, just a few quick tips in, uh, to know is that when we are in meditation, that's the time that we will be turning off those microphones. But as you can see, a lot of times it's really sweet to be in spontaneous discussion with one another. So during those times, if Sylvia calls your name, please feel free to go ahead and unmute your mic, uh, allow your voice to be uh, known in the circle. We always do love to be in deep discussion. All right, that's really it on my end. And uh, I'll just leave it right over back to you, Sylvia. Thank you so much. And thank all of you for being here. Yeah. I'm just gonna go back to my first page. I'm really gonna, uh, uh, encourage as many of you who can and feel comfortable to just for the first page, for the first 10 minutes, uh, put your picture up. So we're looking around. Get the sense of there being, you know, I know that there are people all over the place who are unable for some reason they're at work or it's the middle of the night or something to not be here with their uh, image on screen 
uh, who are recording this for later, which is absolutely fine with me as well. So I had a whole bunch of things as the weeks passed by, and I, I thought to myself, oh, I have to talk about this. Oh, I have to talk about that. So I, and there are a couple of particular things that happened in the last few months, the last few weeks, that have been in my mind, and they have something to do with all of the, the, the main, okay, here's the main thing that I want to talk about. Three people died this last week. Well, one of them almost died. My friend Marilyn went into a coma 12 days ago, during which time since then, she's in the hospice, comes by and checks her out, and no pipes and tubes, not being artificially fed. Uh, every once in a while, sometimes once in a day, sometimes twice in a day, she opens her eyes and sometimes recognizes and sometimes doesn't recognize the people there. And sometimes, usually if she's woken up that much, drinks a couple of sips of lemonade and goes back to sleep or back into the coma because she doesn't seem so rousable during that time, doesn't move if we call her name. And 12 days have gone by. And it's, it's like a very long time for people to be waiting for someone to pass because the waiting for them to pass time when you know that the passing is happening, gets really drawn out. On the other hand, it got to be pretty normal. I spoke again to one of her daughters last night. I've been several times to see her. She's 96 years old, and, which is another amazing thing that she's been here so long. She's been here 96 years. Uh, and she's taken a long time passing. But it's making it, uh, in some ways, quite normal. She's not in any distress. People go in and sit with her for a while, and they come out. And she's taking her time, and everybody's, I mean, there's nothing else to do. So I, I'm thinking about her. She's a lot on my mind. Uh, also, a, a, another man who, uh, uh, a friend of mine who lived in, uh, in, uh, uh, Flor lived in Florida, uh, was a professor at the university in Gainesville. He's a professor of religion. Uh, his name was Shia Eisenberg, and he died this week. And um, now, because we're in this uh, electronic digital age, I could be at his funeral electronically. And uh, you may know that Jews for eight days after the funeral uh, for a week after the funeral, hold a prayer service at least once a day in the home of the bereaved, where they mostly talk about the person. They say some fundamental prayers, but they mostly talk about the person. So I have been every day this week after the funeral on Sunday. I've been every day for an hour on the phone with a prayer service for my friend Shia. And he and we have people tell stories about him. And the stories are so uplifting, the stories that uh, uh, we tell when people are gone, when people are dead, is of the most best things that they did. And he did a lot of them. Mostly he had a wonderful sense of humor and he laughed a lot and he enjoyed his life and he loved passionately. 
And the third person that I knew, not intimately, he wasn't a close friend of mine, but he was a very close friend of a very close friend of mine who died this week is um, Dan Ellsberg. Manuel Ellsberg died this week. And uh, I, I'd met Dan at various gatherings. He was 92, going on 93 now. Uh, and uh, my friend is the same age. And uh, I, so I know them from being at the same birthday parties over the last few years. And I really am thinking about Dan a lot. First of all, who uh, uh, the, the sweet thing to tell you about his dying is he's had a, he's been dying of heart failure and, and some other kinds of body ailments for at, at least a year or two now. But uh, it's again, he finally died and everybody is like breathing a sigh of relief that he's not in discomfort anymore. And when he was oh, a month or two ago told by hospice that his heart condition was really not fixable anymore and that he was going to die, which is a condition for being taken care of by hospice, he was so happy about it because he said, that's great. He said, does that mean that I can eat uh, whatever I want? I don't have to worry about non sodium and non this and non that. They said, yeah, eat whatever you want. He said, that's fantastic. Get me Vietnamese food. Get me Burmese food. Go get some Thai food. I love Thai food. And this is it. I get to get out now. And he was, uh, I did not have all of this firsthand. I had all of it <clears throat> from my friend who was more intimately in the scene. She said, Dan is so happy because he can eat all these good foods that he missed. And he talked to all his friends that he loved. And, and he didn't have a hard time about it. When is going to happen now? So I really wanted to talk about Dan. First of all, because it's a sweet story of being able to give, let go without any struggle. Certainly a life well lived. And I think about as, uh, him as one of the heroes of the 20th century. Person who really, uh, with, you know, jeopardized his own liberty and life. At one point, he was known as the most infamous, the most wanted person in the United States with most wanted felon, felon posters up about him because he had, in fact, stolen government secrets and taken them home over a series of nights. And he and his wife, who's a friend of mine, were Xerox. You all know the stories of the Pentagon Papers, so I don't have to tell you that. Pen, Xeroxing the Pentagon Papers, and then they were printed by the New York Times. But it was one of the two, I think, apocal moments, pivot moments of the continuing war in Vietnam, with the publication of the Pentagon Papers and the publication of one particular photo. Anybody remembers the photo? Remember the photo? Constance, would you? Unmute yourself and tell a photo to people. I'm not sure I can do it. It was a naked child running from, from Napon. That's what I remember. I remember she was, and we know it's a girl. Yeah. She's yeah. a girl. I remember that. And she's not alone. And she's naked. And she's on fire. 
and she's yes. running down. Yeah. I remember who remembers it. They, they they said at the time that it was that picture that ended the war. Somebody took that picture. And the reason I want to bring it up is not this is the reason I want to bring it up. I think to myself, there were all these people for all these years listening to essentially what were lies about what was going on in Southeast Asia and why we had to be there or not and how the war was going or not and whether or not it was, if any war is ever just, that, that enough people at one time had to say, wait a minute, we don't want to be part of what's doing this. And that, that picture was, if there was a picture that stopped the war, there were lots of pictures of the war, but if there were a picture that changed the public consciousness, who remembers it? Remember? Let me tell you one more story. I want, I didn't really mean, well, I did it, so I must have really meant, but I thought we'd sit a little bit and introduce each other to ourselves in our groups. But I'm going to tell you a story because it just came in my mind, and which is usually what happens. I'm telling something and something that I haven't written down comes in my mind. So when was, this must have been somewhere in, in the 1970s, 80s. Uh, when did CNN or MSNBC, when did CNN go online? When did we get cable television? Somewhere in the 80s, you think? There's always somebody who is looking it up on their phone. Tell me when was CNN started? That's what I need to know. Everybody's got a phone within reach. <laughs> 1980, June 1st, 1980. 1980. In 1980, I was in a bus, in a charter bus, driving from Snowmass, Colorado, to over the, uh, over the Rockies, west to Grand Junction on the other side of the Rockies. It's on the east side. We were flying over to the west side where we would meet, no, we were driving over to the west side, where we would meet a charter flight that was coming out of Oakland for skiers. We'd been there for two weeks. My husband and I had flown to Colorado, taken a chart, this very charter bus full of skiers and skied for two weeks and came back. Now coming back and I'm sitting towards the back of the bus and there are two people behind me whose conversation was loud so I could hear them. And it's, I sometimes I think, you know, what's the chances that you hear that? Two men were talking about what their line of work was. And one was saying, I'm going to work for this new television work uh, channel. And it's CNN. And uh, it's a new idea in television broadcasting because we're not going to have to have the problem of getting talent anymore. Like actors and actresses, because television, until then, there was the nightly news, of course, and maybe Good Morning America, but uh, there were all day long, there were programs, there were quiz programs and soap operas and stories and tune in tomorrow for the next chapter of Days of Our Lives. They, there was content and there were actors in all those television dramas. There aren't so many now, uh, certainly not in English, I don't think there are some 
so many, uh, there might, might be. Uh, anyway, but not all day long. And they, this particular was saying, I'm going to work for this television network. They're not going to have uh, actors and actresses talent. We're not going to need to pay for that. Instead, we're going to make the thing that people want to see news. And we're going to get them really interested in news. And you don't have to pay the news for happening. And we'll get news broadcasters and we don't need actors. And that was the end of the conversation, I think. is what, And it's going to be called CNN. And we're going to make the news what people are interested in. Uh, and then they can, of course, uh, with the news, as it turns out, you can sell a lot of prescription drugs and a lot of soap powder and a lot of pizza and, you know, the kinds of things that get sold on TV. And I remember thinking about that. Wow, you could make the news that interesting that people would want to watch it all day. And not so long after that, I was, I remember, this is so so bland. This is so nothing. I was uh, dusting or vacuuming or doing some household chore. And uh, the news was on in the corner and, and the television talking away. I'm home alone. And I'm about to... Uh, uh, go outside with the trash or some absolutely mundane, mundane activity. And the voice on TV says, we're going to take a, a, a short break now, but come right back now so we can keep you up to date on the hurricane coming towards Florida. And I go out with my trash and I think to myself, why do I have to be up to date on the hurricane around Florida? I live in San Francisco. The hurricane is not here. I don't even know anybody who live in the path of the hurricane in Florida. And if I did, I didn't, I don't have to know about it because, you know, I'll be interested in what happens to them, but I don't have to listen to it all day. But the, I remember that the ad was geared to, don't go away, we're going to give you the update on this and the update, and we have it now if you listen to it. You know, coming up next, the latest update on what's going to be in this trial or what's going to be admissible or what isn't admissible or what is this or that. Go away, we have this. And we have new recording on what is that. And I think that what's happened in the last 30, 40 years, not 40 years, is we've habituated ourselves to staying up in the, on the news moment to moment as if we really are in charge. You know, I sometimes think to myself on that occasion, I remember thinking to myself, I'm not in Florida, but I'm not in the whole world either. And people say, well, I have to stay informed. I said, why do I have to stay? I mean, to stay informed, but other than going to the polls and voting and maybe sending donations to causes that I want to support, why do I have to be up to date every moment, every day? And what is it doing to my mind? So, that's one story I just want to tell. I think to myself, sometimes I think I've been just in the right place at the right time to have a memory that who could imagine that people did that purposely that they did. What I want to talk about is how our, our we'll do it this way. How many people these days feel discouraged? Just in general. Overall discouragement, some would say, about confidence in the world, confidence that we'll pull it out, confidence that, or about confidence that people are good. <laughs> 
Do you remember in the 50s, um, you know, I'm probably the oldest of all of us. So you might not, there was a cartoonist in the 50s who drew people crouching in the back of boxes. I can't remember his name, but it would say people are no damn good. And they'd have somebody crouching in a box. Do you remember that? And what was his name? It's like a, but if you know his name, I know it was a guy, then wave your hand or tell me that you know or unmute yourself. Because there were all kinds of, he was quite popular as a cartoonist then. But the whole, his tagline is people are no damn good. How many people are beginning to think that people are no damn good? All right. Hey, that's what we want to talk about. What are people like? And I uh, made up with Carlita that we'd have different timing for today. That's what I really want to talk about. Uh, I really, actually, when we come back after this group, I'm going to talk about the Brahma Viharas and the possibility of having a heart that's habituated to responding with kindness and a heart that's habituated to responding with compassion. And a heart that's habituated to responding with um, complete delight in other people's well-being. And a heart habituated to um, the wisdom of equanimity. Let's just wait to see what happens next before I'm... People do the best they can. Is Amy... St. Paul, okay. All right, all right, let's do this. Carlita is gonna put us into groups. And we have about 66 people in the group. That's great. Oh, that's it, I thought it was Stig. I thought it was Stig. Now, Kate Hyatt says it was Stig. I thought Stig was earlier, but okay, great. All right, everybody is in a group of how many people? Thank you, Kate. How many people in a group, Carlita? Roughly five, five, and five or six. If oh. everybody stays put, five or six. So please yeah. do me a favor. Do not take this opportunity <laughs> to not be here at least a little bit. Try to go to your group and talk about what do you think about anything that I just said and what do you think about, what's your general view of human nature? Are we as a species X or Y? And uh, I think we need six minutes to talk about that, at least. Uh, it, you'll tell me after the six minutes if it's not enough. But go in your group. Tell people who you are, what your name is, and what your opinion is. And then when Carlita flashes on the scene... What's the group opinion? Decide what's your group opinion, and then each group will say something about what they said. Might not be enough time, but do it, and then I will teach Brahma Viharas. Go for it. What I want to know is, did you each of you pick somebody? How many groups did we have? Uh, let's see. We had a total of 11. Let's see. Do, 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 do. Yeah, 11 groups. So who was in room one? Do you know what room you were in? Room one, I saw not everyone was in there, but there was Jackie, Mary, Pam, Robin, and Toby. Okay, one of you say what did you talk about? What was you what did you what did you decide? 
go. I, we were all pretty despondent. And uh, I think the underlying idea was that we, you know, we have to work at being happy and it's hard to see that we are innately happy as a species and that um, it's something that we, we have to, to individually work on, you know, bringing happiness into our lives. And we were hoping to get some tips today. <laughs> Thank you very, very much, Mary. Thank you so much. Tell me somebody else. Somebody said question was hugely philosophical and how hard it is to cultivate positivity. Maybe we'll do it better with even people writing in the chat. How about some other group write in the chat or talk? Victoria, where are you? I'm here. Do you see me? Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, our group was, well, we, we ran out of time, so we didn't sort of come to a, a conclusion, although um, we talked about um, how to say humankind is good or evil or whatever is, um, it's not about that. It's about what each each individual does with his or her own life and how to make it the best it can be. And all of us have that possibility. And um, and then one of one member of our group talked about um, the the how the um, loneliness, the kind of epidemic of loneliness, especially since the pandemic, has sort of colored the way that um, that people are approaching life and the world right now. That there's a there's the negativity comes out of a kind of um, loneliness and lack of connection. Thank you very much. We'll we'll do two more, and we'll, and then we'll do another group. Carolyn, what were you going to say? It was so calmly friendly. It was like sitting with two other women that I've known. It was gentle. I, I thank you. I, I just wrote that down because I think though that I'm going to tell you back calmly friendly from something I'm reading out of right now in a minute. Let's see, let's see what Rivka has to say. Then I'm going to tell you calmly, friendly. Then we're going to go on to another group. Go. I wanted to talk because I'm probably one of the few optimistic people here. Um, you know, I I abide by Thich Nhat Hanh's, which seeds do you want to water and try not to ingest too many toxins like the news. But I'm optimistic because my son and his friends, who are 25 and 30, are real active and engaged in the world where we opted out and protested. They're like really in politics and voting and doing things. And I'm very optimistic that young people who are engaged are going to help us. So when you talk to young people, they have the joy and optimism that I think ours has turned into cynicism. So that's great. Thank you very, very much. Rivka. Let's try. Wait, what was it? Uh, I was going to tell you a little bit of a book that I'm, I am making my way through. And I think I really, really hope you will read a book that someone just recently gave me called Humankind, that on the cover it says, bold and thought-provoking, uh, this uh, riveting pick-me-up is all we, we, this is a riveting pick-me-up we all need right now. And uh, there are not a hopeful history. One of the things that I read in the beginning, I'll read you some of this beginning and then we'll hear what other people did. About before the Second World War, it was clear that the German army was an air force was building itself up. And uh, uh, it says uh, that uh, the general, the general word was 
the um, beast of prey, the, as if someone was going to go out and conquer a beast of prey. And uh, Churchill said the beast of prey, of course, is the British the nation. And, uh, and the word was that the British population, if it broke under the terror of German bombers, it was spelled the end of the nation. And this is a quote, traffic will cease, the homeless will shriek for help, the city will be in pandemonium, feared one German general, millions of civilians will succumb to the strain, and the army wouldn't even get around to fighting because it would have its hands full with hysterical masses. And Churchill predicted that at least three or four million Londoners would flee the city. Anyone wanting to read up on all the levels to be unleashed needed only one book, The Psychology des Foules, the, the Psychology of the Masses, by one of the most influential scholars of his day, the Frenchman, Gustave Le Bon. <laughs> it's funny because he's uh, Gustave the good, the good. Gustave Le Bon. Hitler read the book to cover, cover to cover. So did Mussolini, Stalin, Churchill, and Roosevelt. Le Bon's book gives play to the play-by-play of how many of how people respond to crisis. Almost instantaneously, he writes, man descends several rungs in the batter, manner of civil in the ladder of civilization, panic and violence erupt. And it says about that um, a sense of ominous from this. Then on September 7th, 348 German bomber planes crossed the channel. The fine weather had drawn many of the Londoners outdoors. So when the siren sounded at 4.43, all eyes went to the sky. And over the next nine months, more than, more than 80,000 bombs would be dropped on London alone. Entire neighborhoods were about wiped out. A million buildings in the capital were danger, damaged or destroyed. And more than 40,000 people in the UK lost their lives. So how did the British respond did people get hysterical? Did they behave, behave like brutes? On October of 1940, Dr. John McCurdy drove through southeast London to visit a poor neighborhood that had been particularly hard hit. All that remained was a patchwork of craters and crumbling buildings. If there was one place sure to be in the grip of pandemonium, this is it. What did Dr. Fine? Moments after an air raid alarm, small boys continued to play all over the pavements. Shoppers went on haggling. A policeman directed traffic. Bicyclists defied death and traffic laws. No one, so far as I could see, even was looking at the sky. In fact, if there's one thing that all accounts of the blitz have in common is that the description of the strange serenity that settled over London in those months an American journalist and interviewing journalist interviewing a British company couple in their kitchen noticed that they were sipping tea even as the windows were rattling in their frames. Weren't they afraid? The journalist wanted to know. Oh no, was the answer. If we would, what what good would it do us? That's such a like amazing insight, you know. Would it help? Would it help if we were afraid? In the stores of in the windows of stores, there were signs like more open than usual. On another pub, it said, our windows are gone, but our spirits are excellent. Please come in and try them. Uh, within weeks of the Germans launched their bombing 
campaign. Updates were being reported much like weather. Very blitzy tonight. According to an American observer, the British get bored so much more quickly than they get anything else. And everyone's, nobody is taking cover much anymore. That goes on. He said, among those, uh, that's what happened. Nothing much. And it ends with an idea that, oh, yeah, military experts, unfortunately, Hitler and Churchill, Roosevelt and Lindemann, all of them signed on to psychologist Gustav Le Bon's claim that our state of civilization is no more than skin deep. They were certain that the air raids, raids would blow this fragile covering to bits. But more they bombed, the thicker this courage got seemed like it wasn't a, a thin membrane of courage, but it was a callus, like people are, can take it. Military experts, unfortunately, were slow to catch on. 25 years later, U.S. forces would drop three times as much firepower on Vietnam as they dropped in the entire Second World War. This time it failed even on a grander scale, even when the evidence is right in front of us. Somehow we managed to deny it. To this day, many remain convinced that the resilience of the British people showed during the Blitz can be chalked up to a quality that is singularly British. It's not singularly British, says this author. It's universally human. That's how this book begins. It's a quality that humans have, this writer is saying. That when the chips are down, you see, okay, what can I do? And get hysterical is not is one of the things, but it's not helpful. And carry on. And you know, uh, the British uh, watchword during the war was keep calm and carry on. And say, how can you keep calm? You know, why don't you get upset? What would it help? All right, but it's one more little excerpt, and then we're going to talk this. Say there, which planet do you think is our planet? Imagine an airplane makes an emergency airline and breaks into three parts. As the cabin fills with smoke, everybody inside realizes we've got to get out of here. On planet A, the passengers turn to their neighbors to ask if they're okay. Those needing assistance will be helped out of the plane first. People are willing to give their lives, even for perfect strangers. On planet B, everybody fends for themselves. Panic breaks out. There's lots of pushing and shoving. The children, the elderly, and people with disabilities get trampled underfoot. Which planet do we live on? Someone did a study about this. I'm trying to find the name of that person so I could tell you. Oh, his name is Tom Postmess of professor of social psychology at the University of Groningen in the Netherlands. I would estimate that estimate that 97% of people think we live on planet B, says this professor. The truth is, in every case, we live on planet A. People help the other people out. People help disabled children, babies out. And then what's more, it doesn't matter, 97% say we would help out. And it doesn't matter if you ask right-wing or left-wing, rich or poor, uneducated or well-read, they all say the same thing. 
They don't know, not freshmen or juniors or grad students, not professionals in most cases, not even emergency responders. It's not for lack of research. We've had this information available to us since World War II. Even history's most notorious disasters have played out on planet A. Take the sinking of the Titanic. If you saw the movie, you probably think everyone was blinded by panic except the string quartet. In fact, the evacuation was quite orderly. One eyewitness recalls that there's no indication of panic or hysteria, no cries of fear, no running back and forth. Or September 11th, as the Twin Towers burned, thousands of people descended the stairs calmly, even though they knew their lives were in danger. And people would actually say, no, no, you first, one survivor later reported. I couldn't believe it that at this point, people would actually say, no, no, please take my place. There's a persistent myth that by the very, na- their very nature, humans are selfish, aggressive, and quick to panic. That's what Dutch biologist Franz de Waal likes to call the veneer theory, the notion that civilization is nothing more than a thin veneer that will crack at the merest provocation. It's actuality, in actuality, the opposite is true. When crisis hits, when the bombs fall or the floodwaters rise, we humans come to our best selves. Then it's got a big part about Hurricane Katrina and how people came from as far away as Texas, came from all over the place, pulling boats to be able to rescue people. Sometimes there's all this in, in, in crises that they report about moving. Sometimes, as a matter of fact, as the book goes on, they report about dire things, a baby that was found with it killed and murdered, apparently, because its neck was cut. But that, that after when all the, when it was in the New Orleans thing, when it was all over, they found that, no, somebody made that up. It sells newspapers. And you could slip in a, a, a fact here or a non-fact here or there. If it was Lyria, if it was gruesome enough, people bought more than those papers. I hope those people, those poor people in the uh, submersible that they can't find at this point get found. And I hope that this doesn't make me, um, doesn't make me a bad reputation. I really hope that they are found. And I hope that anybody else who is, uh, you know, in some way jeopardized gets found and helped. I think that we get interested in like an amazing story. Like it doesn't make sense to say, well, there's just four people, five people. And there's 8 billion people in the world who are in danger of imminent climate collapse or in danger of not having any clean water to drink. But that's not exciting to people. So I want to tell you about the four Brahma Viharas, and I'd like for you to be able to talk about what you think about goodness and kindness. While I'm telling you the four Brahma Viharas, if you have a notepad next to you, take notes about what comes to mind when you think about people who have exhilarated or your experience of these Brahma Viharas. And the first of them is goodwill. It's often called love, but it's a, it's a difficult word to deal with love. 
because it has the the business of uh, erotic love or sentimental love. And what the Buddha really meant with love is goodwill, that the heart is turned in the direction of kindness. I frequently say to people, when they say, what is your daily practice these days? I say two things. Uh, I try to be mindful of the arising in my mind of um, enmity of any kind, irritability, um, disgust, um, not liking. It's generally the ach in the mind that comes to mind when, even when I uh, accidentally, by the way, I remember last time we met, I said, try not to watch the news for two weeks. Did anybody try? I did it, actually. Anybody tried? Kathy, you want to say anything about how was it? Did you do it? It was great. <laughs> I, I tend to be, I have tended to be a bit of a news junkie and um, for years um, comes out of the kind of work that I did for my career, but I'm, I'm well aware that it, it doesn't, it doesn't help me. It doesn't enhance my life in any way to know about all the bad things that are happening in the world. And so I decided um, to substitute it. So every impulse that I had to, go online to look at the New York times or the Washington post or wherever I would substitute it with my interest in learning Spanish. I'm trying to learn Spanish instead. So I would sit down with my book and my notebook and I would start to learn Spanish instead. And I was getting a lot of positive feedback from that because I could go online for this program and they give you little quizzes and things like that. And I was getting a lot of questions, right. And I thought, Hey, this is so much better than reading about disasters and warfare and what's going on in this country. And anyway, just, it's. Well, thank a better, you, thank you, you very much. Anybody yeah. else did try to do that fast of news? Wasn't so uh, attractive as a homework. I don't see anybody. With their hand up. Oh, Tom. Uh, it was it was simple for me to do because I haven't watched the news in in at least fifteen years, and just for the very reasons that you were speaking of, uh, it, it all it does is agitate, and uh, uh, you you get out of your Buddha nature if you if you do what. Uh, take in this because it's all negative images and negative thoughts. And then they repeat things over and over and over. I remember um, on September 11th, uh, when the uh, planes hit, hit the building, they kept showing it over and over and over and over and over. And I'm going like, how it's gotta stop, you know. And then, and after that, I didn't watch the news ever. Oh, yes. <laughs> Thank you very much for the. For okay, that, I read uh, newspapers though. I read the newspapers. Yeah, but I read the newspapers don't have don't have um, voice accompaniment. No, that's true. And they don't have uh, 
They know and that. you can choose not to read an article or, or a story. That's right. Uh, I read two newspapers every day, and then uh, I get the IJ and the Chronicle. Yeah. And um, if there's anything that I need to know, I, I get from there. All right. Thank you very, very much. I'm just interested in, you know, that I said, let's you don't have to have done it. But it was interesting because it's part of like, well, it's six o'clock or it's five o'clock or it's eight o'clock or I could just. But I could if I need to watch television, I watch a lot of cooking programs because they're very uh, I like to cook and I watch cooking programs. But anyway, not saying what you should watch or not watch, but I didn't want to watch agitation. So the, the Buddha is saying, oh, when people say to me, what's your practice? My practice is being on the alert for the arising in my mind of grumbling during the day on anything. Like if I come down on Sunday morning to where the, the New York Times person is supposed to be throwing my New York Times on my driveway. And my house is far from my driveway and my driveway is far from the street and I go down. And it's eight o'clock and it's not there. And I think, oh, see, it's usually there. Why isn't it there? Da, 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 da. And I'm really working hard on saying, well, it's not here, but I could sit. It'll probably be here in the next 15 minutes. Or I can go back home and come in a half hour. Nothing is imperative. It's not important. If it would have been here 15 minutes earlier, would have been what I like. But it's not worth it. Is it worth it? Is it worth stirring up my mind and getting some uh, dust in my mind uh, by being annoyed at this poor newspaper deliverer who has gotten up probably at four in the morning up in Petaluma to start driving hundreds of subscriptions of papers down to Marin County. Uh, is it worth it to me to do this? Is this doing me any good? I look for the arising and presence of ill will in any sort in my mind and I try to look at it so that it will dissipate. Because if you look at it and you think, really, you're going to get upset about this? You're going to muck up your mind about whether the newspaper is 15 minutes from now or now? Not worth it. I don't want to have an irritable mind. My other practice, that's maybe even enough. That's what my practice is. Being on the being on being on the alert for the arising of ill will. If I sit down or go for a walk and I'm looking for a formal kind of a practice, I I think of something like these are the people I'd like to hold in my heart today, my friend so and so who died yesterday, or my friend so and so whose partner died yesterday or the people in my community who are working hard to uh, get the troubles in the school worked out. Uh, I think of people to think blessing thoughts about because blessing thoughts purify my mind just in case. It's like insurance to keep it in a healthy and uh, good mood mind. I won well, years ago I heard some some speakers say about uh her reliance on uh, anyway, I'm not gonna tell the story. It's not good. I'm really gonna stop. It's um 
My father said to me years ago, all comparisons are invidious. Don't make them. And my father has been dead for 40 years, but it lives past him in my whole life, I hope. Um, so I hope I never wrote in contrast to, this is good in contrast to, I hope I didn't, I don't think so. Anyway, here he is, the Buddha is saying to cultivate a generalized goodwill, not because you know every single being in the, in the world, in the cosmos, know them personally and you've checked them out, impartially, the Metta Sutta is called the Buddha's teaching on impartial goodwill. It's the Metta Sutta. And, uh, you know what? I think, Carlita, if you can have that ready to put up on the screen, that people could, uh, when we're finished, I don't know how they could download it, but we'll talk about that. But to have no ill will in the mind. The Metta Sutta is called the Buddha's teaching on impartial goodwill, wishing well to everybody. When you think about it, you can't wish more well than well. You can't say, well, you I wish a little well and you I wish much more well because I really like you. And this other person, well, I'm pushing myself to wish you well. To be able to say, because you actually get it on some level, everybody is having a rough road to hoe. Life is hard for everybody. Even the politicians that we think this person is despoiling the earth, this person is not telling the truth, they're not well. If they were, they wouldn't be saying that because the safest and optimum place to be is a person with a heart that says, I wish well for all beings because then we are in the most connection with the whole world. That's really the whole thing of the Brahma Biharas. It's not that we should get a prize at being the most uh, amiable or the most compassionate person in the world, but that we should personally have the prize of feeling connected and compassion to the whole world. That's the best line I said today in the whole entire two hour that we've been together. The best thing you want to have is to feel connected with compassion with the whole world. Then you don't feel lonely and you don't feel frightened. Sometimes I have to talk a long time before I say anything that's as valuable as that. I'm not doing it to get a medal. They're really sweet. But to get the comfort, the comfort of knowing you have no enemies. May I be free of enmity means may I have nobody who I hold in off from my particular... I don't have any stories built up about them. Other than the story of they're a person just like me and people. Being a person is a hard road to hoe. Every couple of times a year, I let myself quote my grandfather again, who said it's very hard to be a person. It's very hard to be a person. My grandfather, by the way, did not read in any language or write in any language. But, I mean, he spoke. He spoke enough English and fluent Yiddish, but he didn't read in any language. But he said in a kind of a way that he would understand this is a this is a truth. It's very hard to be a person. So if I have anything that is in my mind at all that I'm not willing to forgive or to say, you know, there's a reason that this person did that. It's not a good reason or a valid reason or a fortunate reason, whatever it is. 
but I don't want, may I be free of enmity and danger is the first line of meta practice in a formal way. We've changed the word some as we've brought it to the United States and into English. We've changed it from a poly, uh, the Pali translation, which is my, may I be free of enmity and danger, to may I feel safe, may I feel um, at e comfortable, may, may I feel, no, may I feel at ease, may I feel safe, and may I feel uh, content, because the Pali for that would be, may I have mental happiness. And what is mental happiness? Well, mental happiness is content. It's able to say, it's okay what we've got. May I feel strong. In Pali, the original words I learned were, may I have physical happiness? Well, that's an odd word for a Westerner to know, physical happiness. What's physical happiness? May I have ease of well-being. Nobody ever asked, well, they said, for monks, this means, may I have a place to lie down? May I have shelter? May I have a roof? May I have food? May I have medicines that I need? I have all of those things that I need. And that, and I, if I didn't have them, I'd be, I'd have another kind of suffering. But most of the suffering I have is not being in a cordial relationship in my mind or in my body with all other living beings. This really, I, I mentioned it the last time we were together, there's this wonderful phrase that's meant to be, what happens to you if you pay attention long enough? The goal of paying attention for long enough is clear comprehension of purpose. And the purpose is may my mind be clear enough to know that everyone is doing absolutely the only thing that they can do given their genetics and their background and their situations and what they heard and what they got indoctrinated into. Everybody's doing not a good thing, but if they could do something else and be happier, they'd be doing it. The other, the other um, thing that I allow myself only a couple of times uh, year to talk about is my friend Gwen, I hope she's well wherever she is, it's been a while since I've heard from her, it, saying about when people say to you, how are you, Gwen? Say to me, how are you, Gwen? I always say I couldn't be better because I couldn't be. Nobody purposely gets up and says, well, I feel pretty good, but I'm going to mess it up for myself. You don't do that. Nobody could be better. Even if I'm if especially if I'm behaving in a, um, what do they call it, in an unwholesome way. If I'm being mean or nasty or uh, untrue or impertinent or hurtful or whatever, then I must be happy. I must be in pain because if I could be better, I wouldn't be doing that. That doesn't make you feel good. It's like, Drinking poison and thinking you'll feel better from it. So back to may I have uh, may I feel um, content? 
made my body feel good. Actually, my, 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 I like to think of it as may my physical body support me with strength and my life unfold smoothly. In Pali, it comes out, may, my, may I have physical happiness. May I be free of enmity and danger. May I have mental happiness. May I have physical happiness. May I have ease of well-being. I said those lines, I don't know how many times. In the first couple of years of my practicing, where I was doing a lot of that formal practice, I don't know how many millions of times I had said them, certainly hundreds of thousands of times, because I'd be saying them all the time. But it, it's the fact that they are such a uh, dependable background to my mind does not happen because I said them hundreds of millions of times. They, they happen because I think, I think, because my mind has changed, I am kinder. And I don't think it's because I just rehearsed so much that that's what comes up. I think it's because I learned it and because it's true that when my heart, when my mind feels no lack, no enmity in it, and I don't feel like I need to have more than I have mentally or physically, I just have what I have because it couldn't be other, then I feel safe. And then I'm not afraid of anything. You know, you have natural fears. If there's a big noise explodes or, I mean, if I were in some place of, of personal danger, I'd be frightened. But that's because I'm human. Everybody would. The four of those Brahma Viharas are unshakable kindness, unshakable compassion. Compassion is just like goodwill, just like metta, except that it's especially evoked when something difficult is going on. So that when we hear that there are four people, I think there are four in the bottom of that submersible at the bottom of the sea and we don't know who they are and there are only four people and not that their plight is less terrible than other people who are in the last days of their life but they are and you wonder about how are they may it not be terrible for them however it is especially if it connects me with them I would you know what if they were my children I don't actually think that if we experienced all the pain in the world as if it was all our children, that we could do it. And I just heard myself say that. And I don't know if I've ever said that before. And I don't know if that's true. What do you think? The second of, because I'm, all right, okay. Now I, we've delineated Question one, how much pain can we feel in our whole bodies? In my life, I've met two people, just one way or another way, 
it doesn't matter how I met them, but I remember that I met them and I remember that I had a conversation with them. Who each had carried a baby that they wanted to have to full term. And one of them died the day it was born, before it was born in utero for reasons that no one knew. And I know another person whose baby was born and died 12 days later of a congenital disease that he had. And I know uh, both of those people personally. We don't talk about it all the time. I just know that about them. And I and all of these events happened a long time ago, but I know it's part of their history. And I think to myself sometimes how it just evokes out of me some sense of awe that these particular people as parents in both cases went on and had another child. I think, wow, how they did that. I'm so impressed with human beings. I know people who had uh, children who were killed fighting a war. I have very strong feelings about war. We all do probably, so no point to do that, but that, that we could be part of a culture that found it acceptable to take young adults and send them out to kill each other. It's like startling to me. I can't, can't imagine that. Whether it's by pushing a button somewhere in a bunker that controls a uh, satellite somewhere that controls something, or actually is at the helm of some war machine. How can we be doing that? And I don't think that's human nature. And how come people still do that? Can it stop? I think about that all the time. Maybe that's, I, I, I was just about to say, maybe that's the reason that I do what I do and teach what I teach. But that's not the reason why I do what I do and teach what I teach. I teach what I teach because I'm happy to hear it. Every time I give a Dharma talk, it makes me feel better. Because fundamentally, it reminds me that we have good hearts. And that people are contrary to those uh, cartoons of the 50s. We all have good hearts. We do go out to play after an air raid or offer people tea. What else can we do? The difference between a Brahma Vihara and just the impulse of goodwill is a Brahma Vihara is that a goodwill expanded to a mind state that takes up your whole mind and therefore is redemptive to your own self of um, lifts you up above forgetting that ill will hurts yourself. Lifts you up. Compassion makes you feel better. Always think about compassion, about you hear something and your arm goes out to console in some way. I think we are uh, strung to be compassionate responders. 
I want to put another question, which is a little bit of a loaded question, compassion and the metta sutta. There's really three things to talk about. We didn't even meditate. This is a meditation, thinking, thinking meditation. And the fourth, uh, the third of the Brahma Viharas is uh, empathic joy. Somebody else has some good fortune that you would have liked for yourself, but they didn't. They won. The Warriors did not win the basketball of the whole year. I wish they would have, just because in my hometown and I recognize those players. But you know, it's it's a game. They're very good at it, but so are all the other people. And if we did all of our aggression in the form of basketball tournaments, we'd have a different world. That'd be good. And maybe we should have, you know, like universal basketball games and say, okay, you are the best basketball, you are the best baseball. Not who can kill enough of the other people to cause them to become your slaves. And the fourth of the Brahma Viharas is equanimity. And uh, always when they tell the story of uh, the Buddha who sat uh, under the tree on his night of his enlightenment, and it says he sat down with his mind perfectly still so that no matter what arose in the sky, how many uh, 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 dreadful things assailed his mind and body, he made a vow, I'm going to sit here in great equanimity, and was able, according to that story, because of his equanimity, to have such profound goodwill come out from him, because ill will did not get any of his mind snared up, that all of the evil intended things that had been aimed at him from the forces of evil in this myth, all were neutralized and fell on the ground like flowers. I love that story. And I do think it's a story. I don't think it happened. But I think that's what happens, that if my mind is, is still enough, I will remember the fundamental truth that everybody is how they are because of how everything was with them their whole entire life, plus before this life, plus in the genetics. Who knows if we had a life before this one? I don't know. Um, it's never been central to my own ideology. It might be true, I don't know. Uh, maybe that gets coded in genes, I don't know. Uh, but however it is, to be able to appreciate how wonderful it is to get to be disposed to kindness because it's so much more comfortable than anything else. And each of those to have a heart that's disposed to goodwill, disposed to compassion, disposed to uh, empathic joy, enthusiasm for the other team. You guys won. That's great. And we could think this through, and then we would all see everybody was just seeing the world through a different lens and give up being right. 
and that human beings have the potential to do that tremendously. I want us to go back in our group a little bit. I was going to tell one other story. Maybe you could talk about that in your group because I haven't figured out how this story, how to explain this story. So maybe I'll tell it to you and then you'll explain it to me in your group and tell me what happened. On Sunday morning, I went to a Zoom funeral for my friend in Florida who died. And I really was, I, I, I feel about him and his family, but it was, a, you know, there's a time for everything and he was old and he was sick and he was out of pain. So I, I'm touched by his life and all that he taught and how meaningful he was to lots of people, but I was okay, I thought, in the sense of that equanimity. And then the afternoon I went to the opera because of my last tickets of the year and I saw uh, a Madame Butterfly. And I was completely broken up by it and crying. I've seen it many times. How many people have seen or know the story of Madame Butterfly? The story is, um, let me see on the next page, everybody. Uh, every, a lot of people, have seen, how many people have seen it many times? I've seen it enough times so that I said, I have said to my friends, I love opera. And I go whenever I can. And I said, the two things I'm never going to go to see again, theatrically, is, is um, Cyrano de Bergerac, and I'm not going to go see La Boheme. Cyrano, because of his absolute devotion, but that's a whole other story. But La Boheme, because it's a story of that is based on the colonization of the United States, of uh, Japan, by insisting that the Japanese let them in and accept them as trade partners, so to speak, partners, and set up strongholds in Japan with embassies and soldiers there. And soldiers who felt free to um, marry uh, women with a fake marriage document that said this marriage can be annulled any time. Uh, uh, each month you can annul this marriage. It's a marriage for a month. It can be in perpetuity or you can annul it anytime you want. But uh, Chocho San, who he marries, does not understand that. Chocho San is 15 years old and was formerly a geisha. And Pinkerton marries, so the music is so overwhelmingly beautiful that it, it really sets you up to fall apart about it. But it's about a colonial, that the United States is a colonial, colonial colonizer. It does not take into consideration that the, the cultures that it meets and gets into contact with are equals and of human beings in the world. That it, it uh, uh, despoils the culture, it despoils people as it wants to. Uh, the Japanese culture at the time of Bohem, which is 100 years ago, a little bit more than that, uh, is tremendously patriarchal. So all the feminism, all the, uh, the, or, or the, or the upset about patrimony and the upset about being a part of a colonizing nation and taking advantage of people, taking care of, advantage of other people, 
and people who they can lure in with guile. And I am watching Pinkerton sing about that in response to one particular line where a friend of his is saying, maybe you shouldn't do this because, you know, unless you really plan to marry her. He said, no, no, someday I'm going to, uh, this is for now, because she's very exciting and interesting to me. So uh, I'll just play with her while I'm here. And someday I'll marry a real American woman. So that really put me over the edge. What a terrible thing to say. And uh, who's to say how many people were hurt by colonialism, by patrimony, by uh, the bad treatment of women, really, and the no about no non freedom of women, everything about it, everything about it. And I I was fine when I went to the friend's funeral in the morning, and I was not fine in Bohem, which I've seen and heard many times, and I always feel quite moved by it, quite really touched, and I think to myself. I have to learn more about Puccini because all of his major operas have to do with social ills at that point in time. But I really became quite, you know, uh, my son who I went with was really holding my hand. It's going to be all right, mom. It wasn't all right. You know, I was really, I, he was very dear. And I wondered whether I, and it was, so, in other words, what I want to say, I had was a much more, dramatic response to it than I would have. I haven't heard it in 10 years, say, but many times, maybe half a dozen times in my life. So I knew the story. I don't know what happened to me. And I do think that it maybe had to do with the fact that I'd been to a funeral that very morning so that my my uh, nervous system and my was uh, already set to be touched. And my friend, who's in the 12th day of her coma, was in the ninth day of her coma at that point. I think nothing falls on, uh, on, on nothing. It falls on something. So obviously, I, you know, I don't know. I just thought, um, is it because I'm older? Is it because it was those particular days? Um, is it a good thing? Am I happy about that? I'm not unhappy that I was that touched by it. And I'm not unhappy. I see I see that I'm alive. And I, you know, and here I am. And, you know, I went home and I visited with family. I was fine. So a lot of times people say if you meditate a lot, you get a lot of equanimity. I think you get more equanimity, but I don't think you get more um, more blah. I don't think you get more equanimity. I don't think you get more um, necessarily more calm. I may be more calm, but not, I think, yeah, I have, I think, more breadth of a wider palette of range of response than I did 40 or 50 years ago when I started. Not less response, a wider palette of response. When I'm really touched, I'm really touched. And I get over it faster, I think. But I don't know. So I would like, I think I talked so much today, we didn't even have a chance to sit. 
But I think the touch, the, the, the talking, what would you like? You want to sit a little bit first and then come together? No, Jackie says no. Back in the group. <laughs> this is wonderful. You know what? I love looking at all of you there. I can't see all of you. I can only see a third of you. But I, I really do feel like we are together. We're not, we're not in Forest Knowles together or Woodacre, but we're in the ether together. And I, you know, and I feel like you're all in a room with me. Uh, oh, and Tom says, let's sit. Okay, let's sit two minutes while, that doesn't seem like a very big sit. But stay here, Tom, don't go anywhere. And let's sit for five minutes of a guided sit. Even eight minutes. So sit where you're sitting. And don't think anything. Haha. <laughs> Take long breath in and blow it out all the way. Long breath in and breath out. Long breath in and breath out. And take as much breath as you can in and hold your breath. Blow it out as slowly as you can so you can ration it out as long as you can. Imagining that your body and all the cells in it settle down in the same sort of top to bottom way that the full breath falls, 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 falls until it's all gone. And start at the top of your head And put all your attention up on the top of your crown of your head. And then let your attention slowly, slowly move down around your head, 
so that just like an x-ray machine of your whole body moves down, takes an x-ray of your whole top of your head, your forehead in front, the back of your head, what's happening in there. And then your nose, your ears. And your mouth. And your chin. And your neck. And your shoulders. And your chest, and your rib cage, and down around the lower back, and your belly. And your hips. And your bottom that you can feel all the more as you're sitting up. Just by more pressure on that part of your body. And your thighs. and your knees and your ankles and your feet.
I was thinking of what topic each group should put into their pod for discussion. And so I thought that before we actually get into the group, think to yourself, what I hope we discuss is And with groups of five or six, each person can talk about why that's the topic they would like to discuss, just themselves. And then somebody, all other people might have another topic. Meaning to say, what I'm hoping is not that people will necessarily have a group conclusion, but everybody will get to say something. So please stay. And Carlita will put everybody into a group. And we'll come back just before we can look at each other and end for today. Thank you. All right. Okay, great. Looks like everyone's back. Let me see. I... Oh, good. So who feels? I'm always thinking about what could I possibly say that would cause everybody to raise their hands? Who wants to say something about their group or that they learned something that they think other people would be pleased to know? Jackie. <laughs> I think that my group helped me understand equanimity. Um, I've always had a big problem with that because being human automatically negates equanimity. We always like something better than another. We have to make value judgments in order to behave in a reasonable fashion. There has to be. Um, but they helped me come to the idea that equanimity is really the awareness and the calm to choose how you're going to engage. Not with not having preference one way or the other, not with not feeling anything one way or the other, but to be in a place where you don't just react. Perfect. You choose. Go ahead. That's it. <laughs> no, that, was, that was perfect. I really think that this is what makes us different from other kinds of mammals is we have in, instinctive desires and instinctive uh, re responses to situations and that we have a little bit of potential room in between I feel like saying this or I feel like doing this or I feel like and deciding if, is this the right thing given the circumstances to do. And if we decide it's not the right thing, we have the wherewithal to inhibit ourselves. Otherwise, you know, we'd all be telling each other whatever. So thank you very much, Jackie. One more person, two more people, maybe. Let's hear something that somebody learned or what. Ellen, go, Ellen. I just want to give a shout out to a new member who's joining us today from London, Lucy. Oh. And Lucy is engaged in helping immigrants. 
And I think that, and refugees, and I, I think we should spotlight Lucy. Hi, Lucy. Lucy. Hey, everyone. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, Hello. Uh, what? Oh, that's terrific. And Lucy's quite young. Are you there? Uh, are you young or is it just that I'm very old? <laughs> I'm young. Maybe I'm having a good day as well, but it's a pleasure to be here. I'm 31 years old, so I'm not super young, but <laughs> young enough. And what did what did Ellen mean when she said you're helping immigrants? What are you doing? Oh, well, I do a few different things. Today I was running a creative writing group for people that have experienced torture. Um, but I do immigration advice and I do general advice work as well for people who are new to London or who are undocumented or at various stages in their life in the UK. Wow. Well, I'm sure that I am not alone and wishing you really very, very good luck with your work and whatever <laughs> else. I mean, that's what, if we all could be doing that kind of work, I think we probably would because it has the potential for being very close to immediate good feelings that I've made a difference in the world. Yeah, I would say so. It does. It's challenging, but it's it's definitely rewarding. Oh, it also picks me up. I'm sure, I'm sure it picked up everybody to hear, oh, look, there is somebody in our very midst who, <laughs> whose heart is not only inclined, but whose body and situation allows her to act out the the impulse in all of our minds to come to help people in the world come to the end of suffering. You can't make people come to the end of pain in a mortal life because pain comes. We get old, we get sick, we get this, we get that. But we can not suffer about it. We can't say this is an this is what happens with old age, sickness and death. It's not what happens with greed, hatred, and delusion. We can make a difference in the bad. Old age, sickness, death, that comes to everybody. But um, um, pain that, that comes from unclear seeing, we can make a difference. So we're all doing that work. And you're doing your work. So good for you, Lucy. And what a nice high point to end on. And I'll see you all in two weeks. That's really exciting. So soon, please come. I'll see you then. You too, Lucy, please come. Thank you, my darling. Thank you. We can all say goodbye to each other. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.